one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. Welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 415 for the week of Monday, May 7th, 2012. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein and joining me tonight is Mark Radman. Welcome, Mark. Hello, good evening, and all that good stuff. Exactly, and Gene McCulka was unable to join us tonight, so once again joining us is Craftless. Welcome back. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Always glad to have our fifth Beetle on board. So let's get things kicked off. And we're going to start things off here with some commercial space flight, and specifically SpaceX. They've been trying to get their second test flight off the ground, COTS-2, for a little while now. First scheduled for February, after a delay on May 7th, which occurred, which was their fourth delay. It is now May 19th is the new launch date. Now, the reason for the delay was even though they had actually fired up the engines, all nine of the Falcon 9's engines for two seconds, and they worked perfectly, there have been some computer code glitches along the way, and they had rewritten some code, and NASA just wanted some extra time to look it over to confirm that everything worked, and to simulate it, and to re-simulate it. So, SpaceX's COTS-2 mission, the Dragon capsule on top of their Falcon 9 rocket, is now scheduled to launch at 4.55 a.m. Eastern Time on May 19th, and that will actually dock to the International Space Station, making the first commercial crew to dock if everything goes according to plan. Now, the interesting thing is why they actually chose May 19th after their original May 7th date. Why not a couple days later? And Mark, I think you could help fill us in on that a little bit, right? I can fill you in by telling you this is no simple matter when you schedule a cargo launch to the space station, uh, especially one that's got some experiment, uh, you know, some proving objectives on their own before they can actually dock. The maneuvers, and we've probably talked about them on previous shows, but the maneuvers that the Dragon capsule is going to go through to prove that they can safely not just get there, but safely uh, move into position to dock to the ISS is a uh, they're calling it the COTS 2 plus so it's COTS 2 plus what uh, what would have been mostly the third mission and one of the things that impressed me when I heard the uh, flight readiness review briefing last month is that it's no simple thing and even Elon Musk talked about how complex this task was and that the software for the Dragon capsule was uh, apparently it's something that's totally in-house with SpaceX. So they're actually 
writing the software for both uh, launch operations in orbit, the rendezvous, which isn't just a simple rendezvous, but they maneuver in a set pattern around the, the ISS. They move into a point. Um, they've got to have capabilities for a wave off. They've got to have um, capability that if something happens on the ISS that, hey, wait a minute, we can't do this right now, that the Dragon can move back to a holding position. And then, of course, uh, once they rendezvous, they're, they want to be able to undock, fly away, and do re-entry. So there's a lot of software, and that seems to be the point that has caused some of the delays lately. And we hear about that, that NASA and SpaceX want to make sure that their software testing is finished. And what they're doing is they're taking software, and they're taking the hardware on the bench, and they're, they're running everything together, and they're doing it where they, where they put in variables that... Uh, that would cause a situation for the for the software to either decide, okay, it's safe to continue, or oops, wait, we need to to do this this branch decision and go do something else and move off, perhaps. And so it's pretty complicated. And there's an article just talking about docking itself by Pete Harding, who on Twitter is at space underscore Pete. So space underscore Pete. That's on the nasaspaceflight.com, and he just put this out on Saturday, May fifth. And we'll have a link in the show notes to this article, but it's a really elaborate discussion on the complexities of a simple cargo capsule going to the ISS. And it has to do with visiting vehicles being there, the number of days separation you need to have between uh, SpaceX going up, uh, a progress capsule going, HTV, not a, there's not an ATV going up this time, but you know all of these things have to have a certain amount of time. And they can't be both in the same amount of space around the ISS simultaneously. And when you get to SpaceX, they have days built into their into their flight plan that if they need to wave off and stop and examine some of what of the uh, the numbers that they've seen in their software, maybe evaluate, can we go ahead and do this? Do we just need to restart? It'll give them time if they've got a little little pad built in, which is what they're planning for. And so that's why we end up with some of these erratic slips that we've been seeing from February to March to April to May and now middle of May. Uh, but it makes a lot of sense. So if you want to read this article, and there's even some discussion on uh, the, the fact of beta angle being a factor. I think there's a little discussion on what that means. But it's quite interesting. We'll have the link in the notes. And Sawyer, back to you. Well, thank you, Mark. So SpaceX will give that a try. Now, their launch window is at 4.55 a.m. on the 19th. There is no window, in fact. It's exact. So if it misses that, it will wait three days. They have a three-day turnaround. It looks like until the end of May. And then there's a certain period in June where they must stand down. But hopefully that'll go on the first try. Now, another reason for the delay for May 19th is a launch of a Soyuz spacecraft from Baikonur to the International Space Station. And that launch is, of course, a manned launch, and that will be carrying members of the Expedition 31 and 32 crew to the International Space Station. The capsule will be the Soyuz TMA-04M, which is their new digital one, which they're only using now. The crew consists of Joe Akaba, Gennady Padalka and Sergey Revin, and they are scheduled to launch May 14th from Baikonur, and they should dock to the International Space Station a couple days later. They will be joining the crew that's already on board the station of Oleg Kononenko, 
Andre Kuypers, and Don Pettit. It's interesting when you think about these delays, the fact that multiple ISS expedition crews have uh, prepared and trained for, for, this, for this mission. And uh, hopefully this will be the, the time when they actually get to put their training in practice and see her come aboard with hopefully some goodies. Indeed, it does have some nice treats on board as well as other small experiments and non-expendables. So if they burn up, it's not a problem. All right. Now, also this past week was a launch, another launch, and that was an Atlas V rocket. This was an Air Force launch from Cape Canaveral Air Force Station. And it was the second of the Air Force's Advanced Extremely High Frequency Communication Satellites, or AEHF. And that successfully lifted off after a day's delay on May 4th at 2.42 p.m. Eastern Time. Alright, so now we're going to continue on to a really interesting story that we unfortunately had to skip last week because of our shuttle show. But this is one that I really actually wanted to talk about, and this was a company called Planetary Resources. Now, here's this company's plan. It has recently just been publicized what they've actually been doing. Their goal is to actually have a, a thing where they can start mining near-Earth asteroids, or NEAs. They have a very interesting technique of doing it. They have it in a three-step process, according to a press release and a press conference that they've given recently. What they'll be doing is they will be sending up a series of different observation satellites, and that would be the ARCID-100 series is what they'd be calling it. It would be a family of deep space spacecraft, which could also be used commercially as telescopes. So what they'll be doing is they'll be taking a look for possible asteroids. Then their goal would be to get the technology so that they can actually launch to it and find one that's as easy to travel to as, say, going to the moon. And then possibly mine it for what it has inside of it. Now, what might it have that's so important about it? Well, it has some very important precious metals and materials. For example, palladium, platinum, oxygen, and water. The company itself is backed by some pretty big names. The two main people on board who are chairing it is Eric Anderson, who co-founded that, with Peter Diamandis, who you may know from, as the CEO of the Google X Prize. Now, on top of that, there are some other pretty big names, such as James Cameron, the famous director who also recently dived down to the deepest part of the ocean, Google Chief Executive Larry Page and Chairman Eric Schmidt, former Microsoft executive and veteran astronaut Charles Simone, Google Executive K. Ram Sharam, and Ross Perot Jr., on top of other names, such as friend of the show, Tom Jones. So this is a really interesting plan, and they're hoping to actually do this within the next 10 to 20 years to make it practical. What do you guys think about this? Sounds to me like it's some real forward-looking uh, engineers and planners and investors that are investing in the future. And it, to me, it's interesting because lately I've been reading some science fiction-type stories and one of the things that's featured in one of the stories is uh, they, they mention asteroid belts, you know, out there in different places across the galaxy. And they use them for exactly that, for mining. Now, they don't go into technical description because that's not what the books I read are about. But 
there's so many things that science fiction writers have talked about and, and had us dreaming about for a long time. And it, it takes time, even when you get to where you're getting ready to step out there and try this stuff. you got to invent a whole lot of technology to pull it off and get a lot of money behind you, too. So I think it's pretty neat. I think it's really – I mean, this is how – we talk so much about commercial space without talking about the fact that they need to make money. Eventually, they need to make money, and this is a way to do it. This is a way to actually – make this worth all the time and expense and effort. It's really the only way to really make money. I mean, they're not going to make the big bucks in like space tourism. They're going to make the big bucks in mining. And that's going to be true wherever we go in our solar system. It definitely helps that they have some big name backers with some big bucks behind them as well. And I mean, one thing that they've talked about, though, is that uh, they said that they actually need to work on some of the technologies before they can actually make this practical. For example, they need to work on robotics to actually mine it and thrust to actually get there and things to make it practical. That's uh, that's exactly the beauty of it because you have people with the pockets and the talent resources and all the ingredients that you need to figure out how to do something like this. And so... I think if anybody can do it, it's this type of team. And no matter what, going into space is about the uh, it's pretty much the riskiest investment you can make. Thank goodness there are people who are willing to make it because a lot of people just want to protect their money. And this is a you know, it could pay off really big for them and I hope it does because that will make more people invest in space. Yeah, everybody wants a sure thing, but uh, and, and I would say this is a sure thing whether it'll be the, the techniques and the ideas that this team comes up with or whether they'll be stepping stones. It's, it's still a sure thing. I think it'll happen. What I think is also neat, though, is that it's not just actually in the meantime, you know, while we're waiting for it, we're not getting anything out of it, you know, waiting for them to start mining. They're developing, you know, new technologies they'll have to to get to the asteroid, to land on the asteroid, to mine it, and to make it practical to get it back. Plus... The system that they're using, the space telescope system, they're not just using one, they're actually using multiple to track down an asteroid, is also going to be the world's first commercially available space-based telescope. So, although they're using it for their own purpose, they're also making it available commercially, which I think is not only a smart business decision, but a smart science decision. Oh, absolutely. I mean, really, I don't think you can have enough... Um, you know, capability to look at the sky more. But I think the beauty is that they're looking at this as a several-pronged approach, which means that they are more likely to make money back, which means that they can do more. And if you have, you know, any investment in space right now is a long-term forward-thinking investment. It still is. And the people who've been working on any project that involves going to space or sending something to space, they spend years and years not making money before they really make any. And, you know, that's, that's a real commitment. And so when you have a group of investors who have been through being entrepreneurs and have been through all these, they have such a wide group of backgrounds. It's just a great team to do this kind of thing. They know what they're getting into. I don't think they'll be frustrated in five years. 
you know, I think they're going to really do this for the long haul. And that's one of the things that actually makes people who are investing in space special amongst entrepreneurs and investors. Because I know you said it's a sure thing, Mark, but it's not a sure thing. It's not a sure thing at all. It's actually quite a big risk, and it's, it's a giant investment. There's much safer risks that you could take. To us, it seems like a sure thing, but it isn't necessarily. As an entrepreneur myself, I, I can see that. And, you know, if I was really wealthy, I would love to invest in something like this, but I'm sure that I'd have financial advisors telling me I'm crazy. <laughs> And you would, and you would, yeah, you're right. Realistically, you'd set limits as to how far you would go, and uh, you would be studying up on it. And it's interesting. The just for a, a short uh, sidetrack, we've talked about NASA and the Nemo mission before. The uh, and Nemo 16 is coming up in June, and what they're going to be working towards is. Uh, techniques to work on asteroids and deep space missions. That's what they're going to be working on undersea, which, uh, you know, helps kind of the direction that what we're talking about. Also, I would, I would like to add, I love, I, I love that, um, you know, we're starting to think of things like off our planet. I mean, we have finite resources here. We have a lot of resources, but they are finite and we've abused them. So we actually have to be thinking in these terms of exploring elsewhere with the commercial intention. It's necessary to the continuation of, of human civilization. So this it's so exciting to be in this time where it's starting. <laughs> right. I, I mean, Eric Anderson said, um, quote, over the next five to ten years, I envision a world that believes that resources from space will play a part in our future. On a scale of 20 to 30 years, I envision the resources from space will be contributing a significant amount to the GDP of the planet. That's saying something pretty big. Is that if you can have space actually coming back into our you know, gross domestic product and people seeing that, what we're actually getting out of space, seeing it directly on our economy, then that's pretty impressive. Yeah, it's kind of, it's the perfect thing of people who, like, you know, the naysayers who think that we basically pile a bunch of money into rockets and set fire to it and send it to space. <laughs> you know, they're, they're wrong, but a lot of people really feel that way. If they can see that it's actually, you know, we know the value that, say, NASA and government programs has brought to our lives and economies. And, you know, we're, we're knowledgeable about these things. And I'm sure most of the listeners of this podcast are. But I'm sure we've also all encountered the people who really seem to think that we're just throwing money into space and not getting anything back. And this is, I mean, right here, especially these people investing in it, that really says everything about how, no, no, in the long term, this is about investing in our future. This is about, you know, eventually, you know, space is just going to pay out more and more and more. It's a worthy investment. And that's true on, you know, a private level and a public level. And they should go hand in hand. And, you, you know, it's just not true that money spent on space is just disappearing. <laughs> so I really hope a lot of people who aren't space geeks are, you know, at least noticing, ooh, wait, this this is what James Cameron's doing now? And hey, wait, they're, they, they, you know, the founders of Google are saying that we can make money off of this? You know, <laughs> I'm hoping that more lay people really 
start paying attention to these stories. Indeed, if this works, NASA should maybe take a note and forget the Google Glasses. Let's go for a Google Asteroid. <laughs> All right, so continuing along now, everybody likes a good scotch who's able to legally drink one now and then, right? Well, there's a company called Ardberg, and they're makers of scotch. And this is all from an article on popsci.com. Scotch usually gets its flavor from aging in oak barrels for decades on end. Now what actually happens in those barrels on a chemical level is complex and not entirely understood. So they're going to be doing an interesting experiment in space. What happens to scotch as it ferments in zero G? It will be put on board nano racks which is a private company that sends up uh, racks on a cargo ship and that will be on the International Space Station. So they will send up a sample of the materials needed to make scotch as well as a little bit of the oak and they will see what happens when up in space if these two will actually ferment and either make scotch or make something different and in hopes of also understanding the process behind the creation of the drink. I have a feeling there are a lot of people out there that are cheering for this to succeed so they can get space alcohol, right? <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> so what do you think? Do you think this is going to have any effect on it at all or no? Well, I think it's a great story. Um, I think that's the main benefit to it. It's uh, an eye-catching headline. <laughs> um, and it's got that kind of cool factor. I don't know if it's necessarily important science that must be done, <laughs> but it, I mean, it, it, there are a lot of mysteries to things that we've done for a long time, and it's always nice to solve them. Um, you know, a, a lot of people would probably say this isn't, you know, hard, like necessary science. It's not something that really, but it does make for a great story. Like, it, it gets people's attention, and I'm hoping it's not taking up too much space. Um, and uh, I know there's plenty of, you know, pro projects going on in the lab, but it, it's, it'll be interesting to see what happens. <laughs> exactly. It's going to be on on one of the nanoracks, which is stored aboard the International Space Station for two years. They'll be doing a control to go along with it on Earth, and when it comes back, they'll see what ends up happening to it so be ready to check your local liquor store for space scotch <laughs> i'm kidding well, I think it's gonna be quite some time before anybody would be putting that on the market yeah i'm totally but kidding who knows maybe they'll come up with something that's like a way more delicious version all right now we're going to continue on to mark for the final two stories and these are a little bit more somber than uh alcohol in space so mark go ahead and take that away my pleasure a couple weeks ago when i talked to tara rutley with the international space station science uh, and payloads office she mentioned that they had a blog that's on the nasa site and the, the blog is called a lab aloft kind of hard to say that to where it makes sense as uh phonetically but this particular blog entry that I want to mention was actually posted in February. And we made mention on one of our shows of an astronaut that passed away. Her name was Janice Voss. And when I read this, 
of course, anything that you read about the NASA astronauts is always, for me, it's something that is just a, has an incredible amount of wow because these men and women are so accomplished, they're so educated, they speak so well, they're such great representatives, ambassadors for NASA. Well, this blog is about Janice Voss and some of the things that she did in her career with NASA. And in particular, apparently she had a real love for physical sciences, which is where I'm headed with this. And her dedication is such that she was the only crew member ever selected to serve as a lead increment scientist representing the research community during experiment operations. Now, in particular, there was one experiment that when I saw the video that's uh, listed on this, on this blog entry, the video itself honest to gosh, had me just speechless and, and continually thinking, wow, I've never seen anything like that. I can't imagine seeing anything like that. And, of course, it was an experiment that took place on the International Space Station in July of 2004. Astronaut Mike Fink, Mike Fink melted solder on board the ISS. Now, that sounds pretty simple. Let me give you a real short background. I've dealt with solder in the electronics world and repairing circuits, and uh, solder is used to attach components. It's a mixture of lead and tin and a certain percentage, depending on what you're working with, and also flux, which helps the molten metal flow and makes a better connection by reducing an oxide layer at the, the metal-to-metal junction that you're, that you're forming. Um, of course, I'm not used to soldering in zero-G. And if you watch this video, you will see little droplets of flux on this solid molten bead of metal. And these little beads of flux will actually go into orbit around the surface of the sphere of the molten lead tin solder. And when I saw that, it it just absolutely amazed me. And I think that uh, you'll enjoy that, certainly, but I think you'll enjoy reading about somebody that made some great contributions to the space program. And the reason that, uh, that she is connected with this is that uh, she worked with scientists to evaluate exactly what caused this orbital effect. And the final determination that you'll read about here is the Marangani convection. I'm sorry, I don't have the education and the background to understand that, but uh, it's it's the sort of thing that sometimes you read something and you just have to know more about it, and maybe this will spur a little exploration for some of our listeners on their own. And we'll have the link to this blog that Tara Rutley pointed me to. Thank you, Tara. And I hope everybody enjoys uh, a little bit of science in their day. All right, now we're going to wrap things up tonight with a continuation of our Space Shuttle Retirement. And Mark, I believe you have another great interview for us from your week down at the Kennedy Space Center. So what do you have lined up? Well, one of the, the folks that I really enjoyed uh, spending some time with, I got to sit up in the cockpit of uh, NASA 905, the 747 shuttle carrier aircraft, and I talked to one of the flight engineers. Tell me your name, please. My name is Henry Taylor, and you're a flight engineer. Yes, sir. On NASA 905? Yes, I am. That's interesting. There's not too many aircraft commercially flying, I don't think, that have a flight engineer nowadays, are there? Not very many. Uh, most of the uh, commercial flight airplanes have uh, gone to glass cockpits and uh, automation and just have just two crew members. How busy are you 
on a flight where you've got the orbiter on? Well, most of the time we, we stay fairly busy on one that came back from the end of mission because we constantly have to manage or monitor the electrical load to make sure that all the orbiter's uh, electrical circuits are staying properly powered. We have voltmeter and amp meters back here, and every 15 minutes we're recording the information so that to make sure that uh, in case the load changes, that means that part of the orbiter cooling uh, or, or, or heating or recirculation systems are not working, so we have to be able to report that in to the, uh, to the query manager. On this, the orbiter won't be powered, so most of the things we'll be doing on this flight is, is fuel management and just normal systems management. I heard you mention, uh, I don't know if I'm saying the term right, weight and balance in flight. Right. What we, kind of management do you have to do with that to uh, keep everything configured properly? Well, one of the things we do is we burn fuel out of certain tanks a certain way to, to keep the uh, load on the wing right. The weight and balance calculations are typically done beforehand to determine the center of gravity of the of the aircraft and determine where to set the, uh, the trim for takeoff to make it the load, uh, the rotational load on those when a pause pull back to go to so it's not too heavy. Ever have any surprises in flight? Oh, I've had a few. Uh, I had a generator go out one time and had a couple of minor things uh, on ferry flights. One time we had a taken off from Edwards back in the 90s. We did have a fire warning light one time right after we off. But normally the airplane is very, very reliable and we haven't had too many, too many issues. Good, good advantages to try and true and uh, yes we go to the uh, simulator every six months for several days to practice emergency procedures and do three engine land landing simulations two engine landings engine failures during takeoff where we stop engine failures where we continue depending on what speed um, every system that's on the airplane in a simulator can be uh, made to malfunction so that we have to go through our emergency checklist to, to solve that particular problem. And sometimes they combine several problems at once and tie them all together. You might have a lower tire on takeoff and it punches a fuel tank and you start losing fuel, which affects the hydraulic cooling and on and on and on. So, a really bad day in the simulator. Yeah, it is. Uh, Do you fly with the same crew all the time, pilot, co-pilot? No, we, we rotate around. Uh, we have six pilots, and uh, so we rotate depending on uh, people's schedules and availability. And, but it's a small group total, so it's not like uh, you don't know who you're flying with. It's always the same small group. In, in previous years where there were maybe, say, three, four, five shuttle launches in a year, was that busy time throughout the year for, uh, for you to do those? Well, one of the airplanes I used to fly on until the shuttle program ended was a shuttle training aircraft. and so. We were always training that crew plus other crews, and so we're down here for launches and landings and, tra and training at White Sands or Edwards or down here. Um, of course, every time we landed at Edwards, we would uh, have a, a mission planned just just in case beforehand, and then once they landed at Edwards, we'd have to go execute it. So it always takes a lot of planning and uh, coordination depending on the orbiter's weight, depends on how many fuel stops we have to make, where are you going to try to go, and then you can have a paper plan, and then when the weather 
is what it is, you have to modify it and change it. Hi, I'm Henry Taylor. I'm from uh, Johnson Space Center. I'm one of the flight engineers on the shuttle carrier aircraft. Um, Tell me your, your feelings about essentially taking Discovery on her last flight. Well, it's kind of a bittersweet thing. Uh, you know, it's, it's great to be doing it, but it's sad that it's going to the museum instead of going into space from my perspective. I'd like to see it keep flying. Have you, have you flown a flight with Discovery? Oh, yes. I've been flying on the SCA for since the late 80s and made many flights with all the orbiters. Were you on the flight that took uh, flights that took Enterprise around the country? No, that was before my time. What's it going to be like flying this? Well, it's going to be interesting because, you know, there's going to be so much attention and it's just going to be great for the public to get to see it one last time, you know, flying on the back of the 7-4. And I just wish that we could do more flying around. Um, it's just going to be uh, exciting, but it'll be a sad time. It's a short flight? Well, it's going to take us, with the flybys that we're going to do here in the Dulles area, uh, it's going to be about three hours and 40 minutes. Just a, a non-stop flight without any uh, flying around. It'll be about 220, two hours and 20 minutes. Talk about those flybys, because that's kind of an unusual part of this, especially in the D.C. area. Well, we're going to try to, uh, the museum needs, wants us to do a pass over the uh, museum at Dulles, and then we're going to try to do some of the D.C. area. Uh, the exact route is, is not published yet, but uh, we're going to try to uh, fly around the area. Hopefully the weather will cooperate where it'll be good for the people on the ground to see, and we'll have a photo chase to try to get some aerial photography. What kind of uh, altitude are we talking about? When about 1,500 feet. 1,500 feet over D.C.? Yeah. It's kind of low. No, not too bad. That's really, uh, I think it should be a good altitude for people on the ground to see, plus uh, get some of the monuments and some of the stuff in the background. What about people here in Central Florida when you guys lift off? What are the opportunities going to be like? Well, it's going to be several, as you, I think it's been released, it's going to be up and down the beach. Uh, they want us to do some stuff over the KSC Visitor Center and, and here at the SLF. So if I was, you know, a member of the public, I'd just go along the beach somewhere at Fort Canaveral would be a good place or, you know, try to get to the Visitor Center. Talk about the, the difference in lifting this aircraft off uh, without a shuttle on it and, and with a shuttle on its back. Well, obviously, it makes it much, a much heavier aircraft. Um, the actual liftoff is, is just, there's no real difference because we have hydraulic boosted flight controls. It's just higher speeds and higher numbers, and it's just a heavier operation. So there's not a difference in feel when you're on the aircraft? Not so much on takeoff, other than just the higher weight, uh, and you're going faster. It's when you're maneuvering the airplane in flight, it's kind of top heavy. This is a pretty sentimental time, I would say. Yeah, it is. It's, as I was saying earlier, it's. It's, it's kind of bittersweet, and it's, and it's sad, but it's uh, it's also exciting, and it's, uh, I've been in NASA since the late 70s, and it's, it's just the end of a program that's been a wonderful program for the country and for the nation, and, and especially for everybody here in Florida and Houston and everybody who supported the shuttle. It's, it's just, I hate to see it come to an end. So it's in that regard, it's going to be kind of it's kind of sad, but it's also exciting. no more ferry flights for, for this one, but it still has a future doing some uh, scientific work. Well, actually, uh, the airplane's going to be transferred to Dryden after the uh, Endeavour ferry, and it'll be used for uh, 
programs that they have out there or for some spares for nine, for the SOFIA program. Um, SOFIA, an airborne science airplane, is, has a telescope, and I've flown on it some, too. So hopefully, uh, you know, it won't be the last flight of the airplane. What's next for you? Well, at the end of this year, I plan to retire. I was going to retire anyway, but uh, I found other airplanes. So, I, I mean, I could keep working, but basically I plan to retire at the end of this year. So this plane has been around since before Columbia. Yes. Has it been a good bird? Oh, yes. This airplane has been the, uh, the workhorse of the uh, SCA fleet. We had two airplanes. One has now been retired. But this one has done 205 very flight legs. And of the 805 flights it's flown total, it's a quarter of them have been with an order on the back. If this plane could talk, what would it be saying right now, considering you have Discovery leaving and then Endeavor and then that's it? It would say, keep me flying. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's served the uh, nation and the agency very well. Is there a nickname? No, we don't have a nickname for it. It's just 905 to us. When you're um, doing the, the types of flyovers you're going to do here and in D.C., you can see, anytime you're coming into a, a landing, I guess you see the crowds lining yes. up to see. What's that like to see thousands, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of people uh, looking up to, to see you and your orbiter? Oh, I can tell you what. We went to Salt Lake City back in the 90s, and we got there kind of late in the afternoon, early evening, and there were just thousands of thousands of people and they were using their flashes from the top of the building and on the road and the P-rays were just packed and it was really something special to take it someplace where people are not used to seeing it but even people who are used to seeing it it's still a, a real crowd pleaser and it, it's just a special feeling to, to know that you're doing something and letting people see what, what the program's about because outside of the NASA centers people don't know a lot about it me, it seems like. And so it's, it's great to, it's kind of like a show the flag thing. For those of us who have seen it flying, it just, it appears to be just hovering. It's not moving very, very fast at all. Larger airplanes give that appearance. If you watch a C-5 flying, it looks like it's just creeping along. Um, when we take off on uh, Tuesday, hopefully, with the weather cooperating, uh, we're going to weigh about 698,000 pounds. Our max weight is 710, so we'll be pretty close to 180-something knots by the time we get airborne. Do you, do you still, are you still in awe over this machine? I am, because it's, it's such a unique engineering accomplishment to design the airplane with the modifications and attach. It's just interesting that that's the only place that's three, three points to attach it, and the, the structural modifications that happen. And I just think it's a great program in an airplane. So you don't hear any, uh, there's no noise or something like, I'm thinking of a bike rack on a car or something whistling around. You don't hear anything, uh, any notice at all that there's a giant orbiter on, on your back there? Actually, in the cockpit, it's, you don't notice too much, but when you walk to the back of the airplane, especially back there by the aft attach points, it gets very, very loud. There's just a loud roar back there, and you can feel a, a, like a like vibration in the floorboards um, from, the or from the weight and from the uh, strut sticking up and the order. So you, you feel it, you hear it. And it's one of the things I like to do is get up and walk around, go to the back of the airplane and look out through the windows and you can look up and see the bottom wing of the orbiter. That's, uh, that's always a special sight. Is it a bit ironic that you've got one of the most advanced machines ever in a space shuttle and yet it still relies on uh, old 747 old? 
Well, <laughs> you know, the airplane is, is, is still a, it's not state-of-the-art, obviously, but it's, it's certainly uh, quite a capable machine. And, of course, the Orbiter is, is an extremely complex vehicle, and it's, it's, it's a good match. It's, it's, they do good together. What's your age, Henry? I'll be 60 on Tuesday when we... You're kidding. Come on. No, actually on Monday. Sorry. I'm out. Okay. <laughs> I'll be 60. So, so what's your role during yeah. that period? Well, I'm a flight engineer on the airplane, so I'm, I monitor all the systems and uh, operate operate them all. I do all the performance calculations and, and planning for the, uh, for the mission as far as fuel and, and weight balance and things like that. So when you go inside, you'll see where I sit in the flight engineer station. We have... Fuel, hydraulics, air conditioning, pressurization, electrical, all the miscellaneous systems to operate. Now, normally, in the past, an orbiter would have been powered up, right? But not, it will not be this right. time. Right. And we also would monitor the power and flight. But this one won't be right. No, no power at all. Does that make it easier? To, it it will be a little bit easier for us, but it's it's not that uh, too much extra to do or not to do because. When it's powered, we have altitude and pressure restrictions, and we, have, we don't have those this time. So. Is, the, is the weather criteria different? No. no. Other than we don't have the altitude and the temperature limits. What, what are some limits that you won't have? So I mean, specifically, uh, there's uh, altitude limits. Minus 9 degrees centigrade is a is limit, and APSI, which is about 16,000 feet. But those are orbiter limits, not for the airport. So, what did you say the takeoff speed is? Um, it's going to be, uh, our weight will be about 698, and I'd have to go back and look at it. It's gonna, by the time we get airborne, we'll be about 180, and then we'll climb out from there. But uh, we'll rotate at about 151 or 2 knots or something like that. So what's your cruising altitude on the way up? We'll probably go up about 15. A lot depends on you know what the weather's like in the clouds. So. When did you say you began flying SCS? Late 80s. So, uh, okay, so you were here when Discovery was dropped off, but maybe uh, one of the later orbiters? No, I've, uh, uh, except for Enterprise, I've flown with every orbiter. I mean, when, when Discovery, this is the same plane that first oh, delivered uh, Discovery, Discovery right. to no, Cassie, I wasn't right? flying yeah. on it then, but I was on uh, the first flight of Endeavor with, uh, when it picked it up in Palmdale and dropped it off prior to years. So you'll be on the crew for all of the ferries? Right. Remaining? Let's uh, go inside, folks, if you want to, and uh, look around. Now, just a comment from uh, from being there with Henry uh, out on the ramp and in the cockpit. Uh, somewhere along the line, I picked up a tidbit that, uh, and he mentioned it when when we were listening to him. He talked about flying the SCA and training crews, and somewhere along the line, I think I heard him say that he did twenty thousand some dives in the. Uh, I'm getting my acronyms wrong in the shuttle training aircraft in the STA. So if anybody has a question of, is this somebody you'd want to fly with, in my opinion, absolutely you bet. <laughs> if, I'm on, if, I'm, if I'm on a, a 747 that loses an engine on takeoff or two or, you know, you name it, this is somebody I'd be, want to be riding with because I think they would, uh, they would keep it all together and, and keep everybody in one piece. That's impressive. It's kind of hard to add too much to what uh, these people that I met there at, at Kennedy Space Center. It's hard to add much to what they say because they they say so much that to me is just so fascinating to hear. And I appreciate the opportunity to have been there.
That's a heck of a way to retire. Yeah, and his birthday was the day before they took off for uh, for DC with Discovery. <laughs> cool, <laughs> wow. huh? Uh, 60, <laughs> yeah. 60 years old and still having fun with it. Yeah. All right. And with that, this brings this episode to its conclusion. I'd like to thank everybody who joined us here tonight. Thank you for joining us, Mark Raderman. A pleasure. You know, I'm having fun when I'm having fun like this. We are, too, when you're having that much fun. And thank you as well for joining us, Craftless. Pleasure to be here. And hopefully we'll get back to our regular shows with our new format for this season once again next week. But we thank you for joining us, and as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are. (laughs) 